you, worship team. And they do such an awesome job. Love you guys. Uh, hi, my name is Nick Rombo. I am the uh, skipper of discipleship, I guess is kind of what they like to call me here. If you have not yet met me or I haven't had the chance to meet you, hopefully we can rectify that after the service. Uh, but this is commonly what we call our prayer time. But it's a little bit more than prayer time. It's really a time in which we as the church can uh, encourage one another um, and uh, share with one another good things or maybe tough things. So it will include prayer, but it's also just a time for you to maybe say, hey, here's a way that God showed up in my life. And I just wanted to let other people know how that happened. So um, oh, I don't have a runner. Um, let me get my, oh, okay, Emily, thank you. Get the other mic going here. And if you have something you'd like to share, be it a prayer request or, like I said, a word of encouragement or anything like that, uh, just, hey, give us a hands up and we'll get to you. And we're, we already got one over here and another one towards the back. I just want to praise, there's a young gal that I'm meeting with um, weekly for Bible study, and we met last night, and it was just so encouraging to hear how God has worked in her life. She came from Ethiopia, Ethiopia and was then supposedly adopted by Mormons, but um, and she was, but God, even at the age of 10, was working in her heart to know what was truth. And it was just exciting last night to hear her share how she saw scripture. We were looking at John 14, and she said they use those verses in there to say that they're greater than, you know, God and everything. And she said how God used her to see the truth even at age 10. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. And, you know, that's how we know the truth. we got to be in the Word and uh, um, learn straight from God. So I think we had... Uh, in the back there, Emily. Oh. <coughs> My name's um, Marjorie Lady Eagle, and I came here. I came here with Ted and Karen. Uh, my my life is um. I believe Jesus Christ, and He does everything for me, for me. He does everything for me, and I really, you know, love my life. No time ago, I used to drink, drink alcohol, alcohol. But I went and prayed to Jesus. I said, can you do something for me? Quit drinking. And all of a sudden, uh, he answered my prayer. He said, you can quit drinking. So I did, and I went, I quit drinking, and I live everything alone, alcohol. I didn't go out. I mean, I, I don't go out. I got my own place. I stay home. And um, every morning, uh, I, I, I read the Bible, you know, what Jesus done for me and my life. So, you know, I'm just, you know, I can um, go to church or, you know, do, do something at home or take a walk, you know. That's a, if you walk, you're walking like that, and you, 
you, know, you pray when you're walking, ask Jesus to um, pray, pray for you. You know, that's what I did, you know. When I walk, take a walk, I say, Jesus, can you uh, uh, pray for me? And then he goes and asks my prayer. So I know I went through everything a lot, uh, drinking, um, I don't go to the balls. I used to, I quit that. No, um, going to church or, you know, shaking everybody that, you know, when I go to church, how you doing? Like that. Wow. And I got two daughters that they drink, but you know, I don't, you know, I told them one time, you should, you should come to church with me. You. You can believe that Jesus was done for you, but they don't want to come to church. So, well, I'll go myself. I said, but I'll pray for you, you know. To join you in that prayer for your daughters. Yeah. Uh, we'll, let's not give up on that. Thank you for sharing a okay, wonderful testimony you. of God's deliverance and the power that he has to change a life. And, uh, and I love what you shared about how there were things that you turned away from, but God had things for you to turn into and uh, to use your life for his glory and sake and that. So we will indeed pray for your, oops, pray for your daughters and uh, give the uh, praise to God for his work in your life. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, we've got Evan. Yeah, just wanted to put it on your radar to be praying um, for the rally that is starting soon, especially for a lot of the law enforcement officers like Jesse Fagerland, who uh, beginning, once it starts, he works everyday overnight shifts, long hours. I think they, they work pretty much 14 to 16 hour days because the rally is one of the largest human trafficking events um, every year in the country. And so these guys work all through the night um, to try to catch and protect try to catch the bad guys and protect children from really a lot of dark stuff. And so be praying for them, not just for their physical health as they stay up all night and then go on raids and make arrests, but also just for all of the stuff that they're exposed to as they have to essentially communicate with all of these people in this very dark place. And so be praying for protection for them. Thank you. All right, we can do that. Anytime you hear a motorcycle engine, and you're going to hear that a lot in the next couple of weeks, uh, there's always something to pray about. Uh, that right there for the law enforcement and especially the work that uh, Jesse Fagerland's involved in. Uh, you can pray for our uh, Christian motorcyclists, brothers and sisters who are going around spreading uh, the, good, the good news to everyone that they can while they're here. And then just general safety for everybody involved, residents here and our visitors as we learn how to kind of dance through the road construction, the tourist traffic, and everything else. We want this to be a good year for, uh, for everyone. Okay, anything else? Okay, Mark. You probably have heard that the CDC has changed its mind on COVID and, and the federal government is requiring masks again. Uh, I'm not sure what that's going to do as far as our ministry on base. Uh, depending on who you talk to, and there's a lot of rumors that are flying around with it as well. But I guess the prayer request is just pray that our ministry will be able to continue, that it'll be unhindered, and we'll be able to continue on uh, in ministry on base. Certainly, certainly. 
Yeah, and pray for the schools because that's going to be starting up pretty soon. Uh, Rapid City Christian, where I teach, uh, we're going from 280 students last year to uh, currently on board 335 students and more coming down the pipe in the next couple of weeks. And with the, the changes and the restrictions, uh, how do you tell students that we've now in, uh, allowed into the school, well, what are we going to do about space? <laughs> so pray that we're able to adjust and be flexible and uh, do what we need to do to uh, educate these kids. Okay, um, I have Winter, your hand, yes. I will uh, try to make this brief, but um, last week, uh, myself and Nick and some other individuals were at Camp Halawasa um, with the high school students, and I it was a lot of fun, and I'm so incredibly exhausted uh, from sprinting all the time, but um, it also was just this incredible amount of God moving in all these kids' lives, and I just want to take time to pray for all of the students that were there. Um, there was a lot of really hard stuff going on in their lives, and when I say really hard, I mean really, really, really hard. Um, and it's it's difficult to look a kid in the eye and say like that's that's life, kid. Like you're gonna you're gonna go through some really hard things. Um, when what they want to hear is it's gonna be better, and there's something like there's something out there, which there is, and it's God and Jesus. And so that was a great sharing moment um, for them, and I think everyone there kind of felt um, that tug at their heart to dig deeper into that relationship, which was incredible. Um, but yeah, I just, I <laughs> gave my phone number out to a lot of kids and already have received hundreds of text messages of just like this desperation for a relationship with someone that, that knows what they're going through. So just pray that they um, find people where they live <laughs> uh, to talk to about that stuff. thanking God that he gave her people to trust within one week. And she said, that's a miracle, that I could find people I could trust in that short of time. So continue to pray for these campers because, yeah, there's some tough stuff, and not just high school camp, but a middle school camp where Pastor Evan was the week before, and our elementary kids uh, the week before that, uh, that God would continue to work what he began in them during this, this week at camp. Uh, so, uh, if you guys could pray for my my cousin, uh, Mackenzie. She's doing better than she was about this time last year, but there I can still see we were with her for a week out in D.C. in that um, a couple weeks ago, and I could just see she's constantly searching for approval, not from not only from you know family but also just anybody that will give her any attention and it's not always in the best way uh, and then just with her her mom and the situation there just a lot of stuff going on in her life and really needs prayers
looks like uh, it for now. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, uh, I mean, the trip did get extended a little bit. I'll be leaving August 26th, so I do have a couple more weeks here. Um, but anyways, my trip, I just appraise, my trip is fully funded and with extra. And so just praise the Lord for that. Awesome. God is providing, but we will continue to pray uh, for you as you prepare for that trip and while you're on that trip, that God will continue to show his hand of presence and provision. Okay, well, if you would, let's, uh, let's take a moment and let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for making it possible through our Savior Jesus Christ to be able to do what we're doing right now, and that's to come together before your throne and to pray for one another and to pray with one another. And God, it's at times like this when we really are experiencing the full-on work of, of, of the Holy Trinity because, um, God, it's, it's your throne of grace that we're coming to and you desire for us to be here. You invite us to come freely and boldly to, uh, to that place. And, Lord, you also promise that you do hear our prayers. Uh, we may not understand your answers all the time, but you always answer and so we pray, God, give us wisdom and give us discernment to see how your hand is moving in response to the prayers that are lifted up to you. And, and Lord, uh, your, your son, he's present as our high priest, and he's busy praying. Even while we're praying, he's praying for us. And, man, to know that our, that our Lord and Savior <laughs> is interceding on our behalf, um, God, that, that lifts us up, and it is good to know. And, Lord, your Holy Spirit. Um, working in each and every one of us in, in diverse ways um, for your will and your good pleasure. God, you, you work in us through the Spirit to make the words that are even hard to come uh, to form, <laughs> to get from our brains to our mouths. Sometimes we don't even know what those words are, but yet, Lord, you make it possible through the Spirit uh, to cause our prayers to be acceptable. Uh, to you, our most holy God. So thank you uh, for your presence. Thank you for your work in our lives. And uh, as we just heard, Lord, Carol sharing about this young woman and uh, how you were working in her life to protect her and to guide her into truth. And, uh, and, and for our friend who um, was set free from uh, alcohol and so many other things, Lord, thank you for that work. We, we, we have to acknowledge and, and give you praise for that. And when we hear that, we also say, Lord, we're hungry for you to work in our lives. We're hungry for you to, to do something in us, too, uh, and to meet us in our needs. So we pray for that. And, uh, Lord, we pray for a couple of daughters that have been invited to church but at this time um, haven't responded in a way that say they, they want to come. But, God, you can change that. And, uh, Lord, we pray that your spirit would just hound them and stay on them and pursue them to the point where they, they just can't help but surrender and give themselves to you. Um, Lord, we pray for the rally and everything that's going to be going on in the next couple of weeks. I know for people that live here, uh, the residents here, it can get kind of annoying. But um, help us not to be annoyed, but help us to be welcoming. Help us to reach out to people. Help us to give aid and assistance however we can to our guests who visit us. And, Lord, we pray especially for Jesse Fagerland and the rest of the law enforcement team that are going to be working so hard uh, these next couple of weeks, and especially for the work that Jesse's doing um, in trying to bring a halt to 
uh, the human trafficking that, that occurs with this event. So, Lord, we pray, you know, the, you said that the Spirit was on you to, um, to set the prisoner free from bondage. So, Lord, if there are women or others that are caught up in this thing, that you would set them free and that you would use Jesse and others to be your agents to help that to happen. So protect them and watch over them and help them to, uh, to uh, be suc- successful in this good work that they're doing. Um, Lord, we thank you for the work that you do at Bible camps, and I'm especially grateful for people like Winter, <laughs> who uh, was a little hesitant to uh, throw herself into the role as a counselor there, but she did, and she did a great job because she was so dependent on you. And thank you for the connections she was able to make with campers and, uh, and is continuing in those connections. We pray that that will go on and that you would use her, Lord, to be an encouragement uh, to her campers that are going back sometimes to very lonely places, places where it's hard to find somebody that has the same faith that they have. So we pray, God, that uh, you would continue the work that you had begun in these campers and, uh, and uh, glorify yourself in them. And Lord, we pray for uh, Logan's cousin, Mackenzie, and we pray, God, that you would just give her a desire to seek only your approval, just yours, uh, and to know, God, that she is fully accepted by you through Christ. We pray that you would give her a, a, just a real hard realization of that uh, so that, uh, God, it would protect her and keep her where she needs to be. So, Lord, uh, put your hands around Mackenzie and draw her close to you uh, in this hour, we pray. And, Lord, thank you uh, for what you're doing to help get workers out into other parts of the world to fulfill the commission that you've given to us to, um, to, to make your name known to all nations. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll continue to, uh, to guide Kevin in this work that you've called him to. Thank you for the provision that you've already uh, fulfilled for him and that, God, you would just continue to pour out your blessings uh, upon him, upon Ben, upon Vanessa, and others that we know uh, that are uh, seeking to serve you uh, all around this world. And then finally, Lord, um, hearing a prayer the other night uh, at the campfire uh, that came from a young man that was thanking you for the things that you've taken away from him so that he could learn to be stronger and more dependent on you. Um, that prayer is still resonating around in my heart, God. And so as a body of believers here at Common Ground, um, we're going to pause for a moment and do that and say thank you, Lord, for what you've taken from us uh, because you work all things together for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purposes. So help us, Lord, to walk in that kind of faith and that kind of trust. And uh, when we come to you saying, Lord, we need this, give us this, give us that, um, we also want to say, Lord, there are things that need to be taken out of our lives that maybe we don't realize that are hindering our walk with you. Help us to be grateful. Help us to be thankful. Help us to be completely dependent upon you. And then finally, Lord, just pray for our pastor as he comes up here to share Uh, from Psalm 73 today, that, uh, God, your spirit uh, would rest mightily upon him and that the words that uh, come forth from his mouth and enter into our ears, that, God, you would make them go all the way into the depths of our souls and that they would be your words um, given uh, through the Holy Spirit to us. 
So bless Evan now as he pours himself out uh, to share your word with us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Thank you, Nick, for leading in that. And as Nick mentioned there in his prayer today, we're continuing on in our series on the book of Psalms, and we're going to be in one of my favorite psalms of all, Psalm 73. And this psalm, in the grand scheme of the book of Psalms, begins a new section in the book. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, um, when we did kind of an introduction and an overview to the book of the psalms, the psalms are broken up into five books, and these five books kind of match up with the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so from 73 to 89 begins this section on essentially the books of, er, of well, the psalms that line up with the book of Leviticus. And the Le- Leviticus psalms are essentially all about the sanctuary because that's what the book of Leviticus was about. It was about the Levites, this first group of priests who led the Israelites in worship and in faith. And so when we look at this psalm here, that's what it's doing. It's instructing us as a priest would instruct us in faith and in worship. And when you begin in this psalm, you're going to see that it's written by a guy named Asaph. And some think that he was the worship leader for King David at that time, um, because there was a worship leader named Asaph at the time. But there were also a few other Asaphs that we see throughout the Bible and throughout history. And so some think that Asaph is actually a last name that denotes like a whole lineage of worship leaders that worked for various different kings. Either way, anytime Asaph has written a psalm, or there's a psalm with the name Asaph on it, it's meant to guide us um, as a priest guides us in faith and in worship. And that's what Asaph guides us through here. And we've been looking at the psalms as a guide to life and essentially how to find God and how to encounter God in a variety of different life circumstances. And the little life circumstance that Asaph will guide us through here is a bit of a crisis, um, a crisis that I think all of us have probably at one time or another been through. Um, And if you haven't been through it, I hate to burst your bubble here in your innocence, but I think one day you will. And that is a crisis of doubt, of doubt. Asaph here, he wrestles with his doubt in God. Or as many call it today, he goes through a season of deconstruction, right? He has this crisis of deconstruction and of doubt. And basically Asaph, he's a follower of God, a follower of Yahweh, And he says, you know, I believe this stuff, but then he has this experience that makes him question it. And he goes through this crisis of having a really hard time believing what he knows to be true. And he has this urge to just throw in the towel, to just like cash in his Yahweh card and be like, I don't want to follow anymore. And he has a hard time believing this. And then he kind of walks us through, essentially, I had a hard time getting to this point, but here is what God did for me to get me to that point. And I get the sense that for many of us in this room, we've had similar experiences, right? Similar experiences of doubt or of deconstruction, where oftentimes when we go through our faith and we see a variety of experiences or we, where we experience something in our life that, that causes us to question, that causes us to maybe lose a little trust in God, that causes us and our faith to be shaken. Oftentimes we see maybe injustice in the world or there's questions that feel like they aren't answered very well or, or we see problems in the church or church leaders don't quite look like who we thought they would be. 
And some of us have just been taught bad things that we need to undo and stop believing. And so some of those things have to be kind of deconstructed and we have to learn what the Bible actually says. And there are a variety of different reasons that we walk through doubt. And Asaph here is going to tell us essentially what do we do with that? What do we do with those experiences, with those beliefs, with those things that we witness in life that cause us to question God, that cause us to struggle with faith in God? And what Asaph does in Psalm 73 is he invites us to see doubt as a legitimate space to encounter God. And as we've talked about, the Psalms being a guide to life on how to find God in a variety of life circumstances, Psalm 73 tells us that we can find God in our doubt, that we can find him there. And so, if you're there in Psalm 73, we're going to read the whole thing. We're going to read Psalm 73, and then we'll come back to it. So start in verse 1 here. A Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it, trust, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they completely destroyed, s completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And that's Psalm 73. And this psalm truly is amazing. And I, I just don't want you to overlook the reality here that the Bible is God's word. And the Bible is God's message to us. And here in the Bible, in the Bible itself, it speaks about how to handle our doubts. And it's almost as if God is admitting and, and explaining to us that this is going to be kind of hard be to believe at times. That all of this and all of that I have done is going to be hard for you to believe. And just the honesty of the Psalms here is beautiful. And there are many different Psalms that actually address doubt. Um, basically, Psalm like 73 through 89 all kind of have a sub-theme of doubt, but specifically 73 and 77 are just all about 
wrestling with this doubt and some of these things that are hard to believe about God because oftentimes what we know to be true doesn't always match our experience. But it's a beautiful thing that God has included in the Psalms, a guide for that, of how to wrestle with these doubts, how to deal with these things that make us want to deconstruct our faith. And in regard to Psalm 77, which is very similar to Psalm 73, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project said this. He said, it's amazing that people's words doubting God became God's words to doubting people. Because that's what Psalm 73 invites us into. It invites us to a place where we can bring our doubts to God. And God is actually helping us to walk through that and to get to the other side of it. Now, maybe you're like me, where you've grown up, in a sense, where I've always kind of felt a tension between two very distinct, very different approaches to doubt. Where, on one side, I had a big group of people in my life who were on very much the more kind of conservative side, where where doubt was almost demonized or viewed as always a bad thing, a, a sign of a lack of faith, or a sign that maybe you're not a real Christian. And so any and all doubt just needs to be ignored and taken away with, And it's really looked at as a bad, horrible thing, as a lack of faith. And then on the other side, I've had a lot of people um, more on the progressive side, where it's almost a virtue to doubt, where there's just always doubt. And it almost seems like if you're not doubting, then you're not believing. But oftentimes when doubt becomes the virtue, then these people are always just spiraling in doubt, and they always go to doubt, but they never actually come out of it. And so instead of doubt being demonized, doubt has just become a virtue, to the point where people end up living in it and they don't feel like they can believe anything. But I think Psalm 73 shows us that there's really a third way, a third way where we don't demonize it or think that it's the end of our faith, but we also don't see it as a virtue or as a place that we need to get to. In fact, Psalm 73 shows us it's something that we need to get through. Psalm 73 shows us that doubt is this thing that all of us experience, and it's this experience that we can go through and question our faith and not lose our faith. And so as you think about it, I want to ask you and have you reflect on what might be something that you're struggling to believe right now. What might be an aspect of your faith that you're wrestling with that that is causing you to doubt at the moment? Maybe it's something you've seen out of other Christians. Maybe it's a question that's never really felt like it's been answered in a good way for you. What is it that you're wrestling with? You see, the experience of doubt, it's painful and it's difficult, but it's not inherently bad. It's neither a virtue and it's not supposed to be demonized. But either way, um, wherever you're at and whatever it is that you are wrestling with, that you would answer that question of what it is that you're doubting, I want you to really lean into Psalm 73 here. And first, I just want to point out, you know, The very first line of this psalm says, Surely you are good to Israel. And I want to point out that the very name Israel, the name for God's people in the Old Testament, literally means wrestles with God. That was the name given to the people after Jacob wrestled with God. And there's also this tradition that teaches that the very name Hebrew, um, the name used to refer to a Jewish person in the Old Testament, is actually borrowed from an old Akkadian word, haparu, which means to wander, because that's how they spent a large majority of their time after the Exodus, wandering. And so think about that for a second, that God's people, the people group in which Jesus was born into, out of all the different people groups in the world, 
found their identity in wrestling with God and wandering. And so if you were able to answer that question very quickly, that yes, I'm, I'm doubting these things or I'm wrestling with this or I sometimes feel like I'm wandering, then that probably means that you are a person of God because that, frankly, comes with faith, that we are a people who will wrestle with God and at times feel like we're wandering. But Psalm 73 comes in as a guide. What do we do with that wrestling? What do we do with that wandering? And, you know, I've heard a lot of people say that, well, I wouldn't wrestle with these things if God would just reveal himself to me and just make it really clear. And that does sound nice, but, you know, go ahead and try to tell that to people like Peter, who spent three years following Jesus and saw a variety of miracles, saw all these different things that Jesus did. And then once Jesus died, he kind of just went back to his old life fishing and didn't think that Jesus had done what he actually did. Or guys like Thomas, who also saw the same miracles, who heard Jesus say over and over again, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to come back from the dead. And so three days later, when Jesus did what he said he was going to do, and he came back from the dead, and the disciples told Thomas about this, he thought, oh, there's no way. can't be true. I won't believe it until I see it. And these guys had a front row seat to all of the miracles of Jesus. They spent three years with him. God literally revealed himself in the flesh to them, and yet they still struggled with this doubt, and they still had these experiences where it made them question, and where they wrestled, and where they still felt like they had these seasons of wandering, and they struggled. And so what this shows us is that, and what Psalm 73 shows us as we get into it more, is that of all the different reasons to doubt, Psalm 73 shows that there really are good reasons, and there really are bad reasons. There are healthy ways to doubt, and healthy things to doubt because, and there are unhealthy things to doubt about or to doubt because. And I think we have to ask the question oftentimes of why are we doubting and and what is it we do with it? Because it's important not just to leave it as it is. And I remember a few years ago I had a close friend who I had gone through Bible school with and and we had finished up and he was kind of entering into ministry but he was going through a really intense season of deconstruction and doubt and and he was laying all these different things before my friend and I, another pastor friend of ours, and he was just laying all these things out, and he was really kind of angry and stern about it, like, what about this? What about this? What about this? All these things that are making him question and making him doubt, and reasons that he's wanting to walk away from Jesus right then. And one of the things that our other friend, who's a pastor, then said to him, which has become one of the most common questions that I ask someone going through this season, is he asked him, he looked at him, and he said, okay, these are things you're questioning, and this is what you want to do. What is your goal here? What is your goal with all these questions you're asking? What is your goal with wanting to walk away from Jesus? And I think when it comes to our doubts, oftentimes we have to kind of address and confess our motives here. What is your goal? And this is what Asaph did in the very first verse here. he, He starts out and he essentially looks at his motives. And what we find is surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And he has this statement of faith, this thing that he believes, this thing that he knows to be true. God is good to Israel. And then he says, but for me, I don't know if I can believe it. But then he goes back in verse 3, and essentially he says, well, this obstacle of essentially things that made me stumble of seeing the wicked and seeing these people experience shalom and experience peace that aren't God's people, 
while it looks on the surface like I'm the one who cares about the injustices and cares about this, and this is really like a, a problem in my brain of reconciling this idea, he admits in verse 3, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And really it was envy in his heart that ca- came up as this obstacle. You see, he saw people in the world, people who were not Israel, people who were not God's people, experiencing prosperity. And this word prosperity here is the word shalom, the word of peace and wholeness and completeness that God promised his people. Be my people and you will experience shalom. And then Asaph is sitting here thinking, but other people are experiencing shalom. And not just other people, but like really bad people. And he goes in to describe just how bad they're supposed to be. And he's trying to reconcile this of, like, I thought I was supposed to be the one experiencing shalom, and other people are now the ones experiencing shalom. And he addressed his motives in that of admitting, I'm envious of them. Really, I'm jealous and envious of them. And he says in verse 13, I'm the one who kept my heart clean. But it doesn't seem like it's even worth it. He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I have washed my hands in innocence. Verse 12, he was like, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. And in verse 14, but all day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. And so he's wondering, what's the point? I follow God and I get punished and I have this hard life. And the wicked go on just with a carefree life. They don't have to care about anything. And they can just keep amassing wealth and they can take advantage of people and that makes your business do really well. And I would like to do that. Instead, my life is really hard and I have to worry about all these different things. And they're experiencing shalom and prosperity. They get the good life. And his experience here is not lining up with what he knows to be true. God is good to his people. God's people are the ones experiencing shalom. Why are these people experiencing this? Sometimes that's a good reason. Sometimes we have to reconcile with, okay, well, maybe I'm doubting this because, well, that's not really what God promised, right? When God said shalom and wholeness, he wasn't really promising all those things that the wicked are supposedly experiencing here. And so this was an opportunity for Asaph to say, yes, okay, God was looking at Asaph and saying, yes, you're discontent with this. You're recognizing that the wicked are experiencing shalom and you're not. Be upset with that because I think you need to learn what true shalom actually means. You need to learn what exactly I meant when I promised that. And he goes through this season of doubt, and I think he needed to be asked the question, well, why are you doubting? You know, what is your goal? What are you doing in this? Because oftentimes... There are things that that we need to learn. There are things that that we need to shape and grow out of, and sometimes there are these good seasons of doubt when a belief doesn't quite reconcile with what we know to be true because probably our belief is the thing that needs to be changed. And oftentimes when we go through these seasons of doubt, oftentimes we're genuinely looking for what the Bible actually teaches. And that should be the only season when it is a time when we should go through this season, when we're genuinely looking for Jesus in our doubt and wanting to know him more. Maybe we need to learn something that the Bible actually teaches. Maybe we've been taught a bad idea growing up 
and now we get to an adult and we realize that. And the temptation for many of us is to say, well, none of it's true. The Bible's not true. When the reality is we've just been taught the Bible incorrectly. And I've seen it a million times where, where friends of mine, they grew up in kind of the typical evangelical church where it was always the idea that, you know, like at the end of a service, just raise your hand and you get a free ticket to heaven and that's kind of the, the end. And so they grow up with this really poor view of discipleship and of faith, and they grow up to recognize that, like, wow, a lot of Christians aren't, like, living a changed life, and there's, like, really no life change and no discipleship happening, and that's wrong. And they're right about that, but then the temptation is they swing the proverbial pendulum so far that then they say, well, we just need to embrace, you know, like, essentially a social gospel where we're just working and doing activism and solving all of the world's problems and we need to have such a changed life that that's how we like, prove our faith. And instead of getting a healthy view of discipleship, that's not just like, oh, raise your hand and then check out. It becomes a works-based faith, where faith and discipleship is just all about doing and learning. And so even when maybe we doubt for good reasons, there are risks here. There are risks of adopting these other things. And so that's when we get to this next point we get to this next point that when we doubt, I think we have to doubt and deconstruct our doubts. Just as Asaph kind of addressed his motives in saying, okay, well, I'm actually envious of these people. When these reasons and when these things come up in our lives that cause us to doubt, are we taking that same level of skepticism that we're taking towards our faith to our doubts? Because the reality is that while there are good reasons to question and good reasons to deconstruct, there are many bad ones as well. And we can't just trust that we are the ones always choosing the good reasons, right? Because it has a dark side. And sometimes the reality is that when we're doubting or when we're deconstructing, it's not because we're seeking after God or we're seeking after Jesus. Often we're seeking something more selfish, like Asaph was here. Maybe at the end of the day, we're just tired of the Bible telling us what to do, or we don't want to have to take instruction from those kind of people, or these more selfishly motivated things. And often, we just want to live our lives with God kind of out of the picture and not getting involved. And that's often one of the most common reasons that people doubt. It was, it's never this big experience of, of hurt or, or some of the bad ideas that they've been taught, but some people just say, well, I would just rather live this carefree life that the wicked get. And I hate to say this, and I wish there was a more pastoral and gentle way to say this, but I've heard plenty of people older and wiser than me point this out time after time, and, and if your goal is to, to deconstruct or to doubt, to just get something that you want and to not actually seek and find Jesus— the reality is you're going to get that. You're going to get it. You see, Jesus asked a lot of questions as he walked around ministering, and one of the most common questions he ever asked is, what do you want? Because Jesus is never going to, you know, go against someone's will. And C.S. Lewis famously said, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And throughout the Bible, you see God giving people what they want. He's so generous that he gives people what they want, even when it's bad for them. And the word that we have for this, and the word that we have in verse 19 here, 
is destruction. And again, I wish I had a more pastoral way to say it, but it's clear throughout the Bible that that destruction is the idea of God giving people what they want even when it's bad for them because that's how generous God is. And that's the reality that many people go into these seasons of, of deconstruction and doubt because they want something other than God. And God is so generous that oftentimes he gives them that. And it leads to destruction. And so these are some of the bad reasons and some of the good reasons that we doubt. And then Asaph gets in to what to do about it. And the first thing he does, of course, is deconstruct that doubt. And he admits in this scenario that he had bad motives. He wasn't motivated by you know, fighting for injustice. He wasn't actually upset with the rich taking advantage of the poor or with the suffering of the world. He wanted to say he was motivated by those things, and he was kind of virtue signaling that he was all about those things. And then he honestly admits in verse 3, I envy them. I'm kind of jealous that I get punished, and I have to worry about all these different things and actually follow God's ways. And these people don't, and their life looks so nice, and it looks so easy. And first, I just have to say that this level of, of self-awareness and humble obedience is inspiring to me. That Asaph is able to look at these horrible people who seem to be the problem, and they're the ones really causing the doubt, and they're the ones causing the difficulty in his faith. And it would be easy for him to say, yeah, they're the problem. But instead, Asaph says, no, I'm the problem here. It's not their sin that's hurt my faith. It's actually my own sin that's caused me to question. It's my own envy. It's my own jealousy. And that's the kind of Holy Spirit awareness that I want one day. I don't have it yet. I am still very quick to shift blame on others and to say, no, nah, it's their sin that's making me question. But Asaph here, Asaph here shows a level to aspire to, um, to admit our own sin in our own heart and to take the responsibility there that this is what is hurting my faith. So Asaph addresses and he confesses these bad motives. He addresses that he actually has this envy in his heart that's leading to this. Because, you know, it looked like a solid case, looked like a good reason that he should be doubting, like, yeah, these people are experiencing shalom, and you're not. That makes sense, Asaph. But yet, of course, that's not really what shalom meant there. And for us, this is often the case, where we, we have these experiences or we have these things that we witness that seem like really good lockdown cases, this is a good question that is not answered properly, and you should deconstruct, and you should doubt because of that. But really, I think we need to address our heart and our motives and to look into that. Is this really the reason that we're doubting? Is this really the thing that we're uncomfortable with? Or is there something else deeper? And we have to check our motives because, as we know, we're prone to wander, right? Just a few weeks ago, we talked about Psalm 23, where Jesus is our shepherd, and one of the main things that the shepherd has to do is keep the sheep from wandering because we're always wandering around. We have this bent away from God. And, and Jesus, he was teaching about really what makes a person sinful in, in Matthew chapter 15. And he explained that really our heart and our desires are all kind of messed up and are all kind of directed towards other things than him. And he said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. And if this is the condition of our heart, then we have to recognize that our heart is going to be pulled in a lot of different directions, and our heart is going to be pulled to a lot of different things. And oftentimes, probably more often than not, it's going to be pulled away from God. 
And in the case of Asaph here, that's what was happening. God's people need to follow God, but yet the people who aren't God's people are experiencing all these different things. They're having a carefree life. They're getting prosperity and shalom. And he recognized that, well, my desire for that doesn't make it good. That doesn't guarantee that it's good, but my heart is always after these bad things. And so he questioned that. And so we have to ask ourselves, maybe if we feel pulled in another direction or if there is something that we are really wrestling with or deconstructing because I think we have to look into our own heart and check our motives and question the direction of our heart because we know that our hearts are broken and fallen. We know that our hearts will go after things that are not of God. And we'll go after these things. And another thing that can be a big pressure, you know, their ideas, their experiences. And then in verse 10, one of the other things that has influenced Asaph to cause doubts, um, he says, you know, he's not the only one that has noticed the prosperity of the wicked. And he said, therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And essentially, a lot of people at this time were also turning away from Yahweh. That Asaph wasn't the only one who was noticing that the wicked have it pretty good. And God's people don't have it very good. And so we should just leave and become <laughs> wicked people instead of God's people. And Asaph was seeing this over and over again of all these people going and drinking up just waters in abundance of following the ways of the wicked. And that makes our doubt and our deconstruction even more difficult, right? When everyone around us seems to be going in that direction. And it makes our doubts and our difficulties really hard to reconcile. When our friends and our families and our circles go in one direction, we want to go in that same direction, right? We want to go in that same direction because oftentimes it's going to lead to really awkward conversations or if if really deep friendships that we have were formed in church or have always revolved around church, then once that person leaves the faith, then we always remind them of church or of the faith they used to have. Or if much of our life revolves around it, then we have these awkward conversations where we want to like tell them about it, and it becomes difficult. And the temptation is, maybe we should just go with them and follow them there. And you know, I've had so many friends turn away from God and turn to other things or just turn to stop believing in God. Sometimes, so many so, that sometimes I think maybe I'm the problem. But I know that it is just, you know, part of our cultural moment and part of just the flow of the stream right now that this is where a lot of people are going. But it's hard. It's hard to have so many friends and people around us who are leaving the faith and going in this direction. And Asaph recognizes that here. He recognizes that here because when everyone around us seems to be slipping or stumbling or buying into this and then experiencing this prosperity, the temptation then is to follow. And I think, especially for some of us who have, you know, high emotional intelligence or a lot of empathy, then we can just really get sucked into those feelings of others, especially when friends of ours are deconstructing or really wrestling with doubt all of a sudden, we're listening to them, and our, those doubts become our own. And their deconstruction makes us question, oh man, you're right, this is a problem. When oftentimes, it's not really something that bothers us. But when others around us go through these things, they will affect us as well. And we have to be able to distinguish between 
okay, what are our actual feelings and thoughts and what are we discontent with and what is just being influenced on us? And we must mourn and hurt because our friends are walking away, but, but to not just be influenced by that and to not just be motivated or affected by that. And another source of doubts here are these ideas that Asaph mentions in verse 8 through 9. He says, these people, these wicked, they scoff and they speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Essentially, their words are just very convincing. Verse 13, they say, how could God know? Does the Most High know anything? And so often we have these experiences of doubt that lead us to question our belief. And then we have friends and relationships that might point us in that direction. And there are also ideas. There are also ideas that can get into our heads, these, these people that come and say, well, how can God know anything? I mean, that's an unanswerable question first. Like, I mean, how could he not? I don't know. But this was apparently really rocking people's worlds, that the wicked were coming and asking these, like, unending questions. And if you read through Paul and the epistles or, or the book of Hebrews, you see that there is this constant battle against these bad ideas. And there's always the risk of people slipping away because they've believed false doctrines. And when it comes to this place, to these ideas, well, frankly, whenever we're turning towards these things, the same principle applies. The same move of Asaph applies to deconstruct our doubts. Because oftentimes, you know, friends of mine who have turned away from faith in Christ often just turn to atheism which is the most common place for Christians to turn to because as Christians, we're taught that there's one God, right? And so if we're taught that there's one God and then you don't believe in that one God, you're left with zero, right? One minus one is zero. And so that's why, if you're wondering why so many Christians then turn to atheism, it's because you can't really get less than one. It ends up with zero. And so oftentimes that's the place where our Christian friends and family will go when they've deconstructed and walked away from faith and oftentimes the culture wants to tell us that, you know, you're either a person of faith or you're not. And you can believe in all these things or you can just not believe in anything. But we know that that's not true. That the person who leaves faith in Jesus doesn't go to faith in nothing. They just go to faith in something else. Go to faith in some other idea. And really it's faith transferred, not faith deleted. And if we're ever tempted to follow those ideas, or if we're ever tempted to leave our faith in favor of atheism or another idea, we have to take the same level of skepticism, the same, le same level of maybe cynicism that caused us to doubt and deconstruct to those other ideas, to this other faith. If we're going to ask these rigorous, hard questions and philosophical questions about God and about the Bible, and if we're troubled by not having great answers to that, well, then ask those same questions of any other belief. And I think we have to learn to compare the two. Because those questions are probably not going to be solved so easily with this other worldview or this other faith that we jump into. But oftentimes we think, well, no, we can just go to this place and it's like a neutral ground where we don't have to believe anything. Until you get there and you realize that you do. And as Simon Peter said in John chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go if we leave you? And Asaph recognizes this, that if you're going to turn from God, you have to turn to something else. 
And these issues and these problems and this idea of like, well, how can God know anything? It doesn't get solved by turning away from God. And in verse 18, he recognizes that even the wicked, they're on slippery ground too. They have this hard walk of faith as well. That if faith is this kind of hike and this journey where you could trip and have obstacles and stub your toe, there's no other option because you can't have a life of not faith. You just have faith in other things. And in verse 18, he says, Surely you place them on slippery ground, and you cast them down to ruin. And if you start to think about the other beliefs that you're tempted to believe, you realize that that ground isn't very stable either. That if the injustice you see in the world of the wicked experiencing prosperity is a difficulty for God's people who are promised shalom, it's a difficulty to reconcile for the wicked as well. Well, how do they answer those questions? Well, they're on slippery ground here. They're on slippery ground here. And anytime there's a belief that we're tempted to lean into, we have to think critically about that as well. That if we're tempted to stop trusting in Jesus or to, to accept another narrative other than the one that is taught in the Bible, well, you better be sure that that is true and you better ask these hard questions of that idea and of that faith as well. And what you're going to realize is that it does, most of those are not going to have good answers either. It's also going to be slip, slippery. Is it actually better? And what Asaph realizes is that this life that the wicked have that looks so good and looks so nice and uh, it's kind of tempting, I want to follow that, it's not actually better. And he goes into it in verse 19. Okay, things look really good to them them. But then, how suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So Asaph, he recognizes that they have all these luxuries and they might live a carefree life here, but those things are temporary, right? And when it comes to these terrors, they have no categories for how to dealing with that. And they might do really well when life is good and when they're prosperous. But what do they do when things aren't going quite as well? Well, they're swept away by those terrors. And if the reality of injustice and suffering is hard for him as a person of God, it is even worse for those people. And Asaph goes into this intense deconstruction of his doubts. These are the things that are making me question. These are the things that are, that are drawing me away from God and towards. And Asaph shows us that the first move to make, question why you're drawn to those things. Question why you're having these doubts. And then question that thing that you were tempted to believe in. And actually compare. It might look better on the surface, but most likely it's not. And the final move that Asaph makes here to deal with doubt is in verse 16 and 17 here where he says it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final testimony test destiny so that's the final move here the final step to take when dealing with doubt here go to the sanctuary essentially now many people point out um, that this chapter is a big transition moment 
in the book of Psalms, that the front half of the Psalms are really heavy on lament and really crying out to God. And after this, things kind of transition and take a turn. There's still a lot of lament. There's still a lot of crying out, but it becomes less, and there become more praise psalms after this. And this verse is actually really the hinge point of that. It's the point at which things kind of turn around. It troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. And this is the turning point for Asaph in this psalm that he's been wrestling with these doubts, he's been deconstructing because of these ideas, and it troubled him deeply. And then he entered the sanctuary of God, and everything changed. Now the sanctuary that he's referring to is the temple. It's where Asaph would have worked as a, as a worship leader, leading people in faith and in prayer. And the temple and the sanctuary was a big happening place. It's where the Jews would go to learn where the the scripture was read out loud and where rabbis were teaching and, and the rabbis would teach you the Bible and they would teach you the Old Testament and they would teach you practical things as well. The rabbis would teach you parenting and marriage stuff and they would teach farming and finances and they would teach you just about how to live your life. And there was also worship. They would sing songs and they would sing praises and they would recite the Psalms. There were places where people were in prayer. There were places where people were just hanging out in community and building friendships and building relationships. And then there was a place where people would come to give their offerings and to give their tithes. And all this stuff was happening at the temple 24-7. Essentially, most of the stuff that we do here, you know, like on a Sunday morning, worship, prayer, scripture, learning, community, giving, all those things were happening at a huge scale at the temple 24-7. And so Asaph is instructing people that if you were like me and you were seeing these things in the world and you were having this experience that made you question your faith and you were tempted to follow these other ideas and to drink up those waters in abundance, just as it troubled me and it's troubling you, here's what helped me get out of that. It troubled me until I went to the sanctuary, until I went to this place where I could encounter God, where I could worship and pray and be with other believers and learn and the sanctuary is where this all took place. And just as we talked about the many different reasons that we'll doubt and the combination of things that come into our lives to cause us to question, oftentimes the way we get out of doubt is the same way we get into it. It's a combination of a bunch of different things. If we had beliefs that weren't consistent with the scripture that have really left us unsettled, well, then the solution is to learn the truth. And if we've had experiences that make us question, you know, like, oh, are Christians really the real deal? Like, they all just seem bad and hypocritical. And we've had this experience that makes us question it. Well, then the way to get out of that is a good experience with a good community, with people who we can see and build relationships with. And if we've experienced these things that have led us one way, well, the way out of it is the same. And it's going to be a combination of all these different things to undo the doubt-inducing experiences that got us into that place to begin with. And this is how Asaph instructs us to do this. To go to the sanctuary and to participate, to encounter God. And the way you encounter God is as follows. It's through the scripture, it's worship, it's prayer, it's teaching and learning, it's community, it's giving.
And that's where he turned the corner. And that's where he was able to walk out of his doubt, to walk out of his deconstruction. He turns the corner, and then in verse 21, he confesses his doubt, and he comes out in a posture of praise. In verse 21, he says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. You know, he was essentially at the end, about to throw it all in. Then he realized how foolish that was, how ignorant he was being. Basically admits to acting like a toddler, right? And then he recognized God's presence in his life. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then he goes on. Those who are far from you will perish. These are the people he was jealous of to begin with. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. And so if you remember, you know, his doubt had surfaced because of this idea that, okay, God is good, but I'm not seeing that. And I'm not experiencing the same benefits of the ungodly. Now he's realizing, okay, well, that was wrong of me. And the conclusion he gets to at the end here, it's not really very theologically complicated, but he finally gets to a point where he understands shalom, and then he essentially says, near to God, good, far from God, bad. That it's not about the benefits or, or what I can get or about this prosperity, but it's actually about God's presence, God holding me up. And even though it looks like it's good for the wicked in this life, he recognized that those who are far from God perish in the end and are destroyed. And they get what they're after, but it leads to destruction. And the reality is that the nearness we have today is actually far beyond anything that Asaph even knew about. Because while Asaph and the Jews back then would have to make these pilgrimages to the temple and to the sanctuary, and this instruction to go to the temple and to go to the sanctuary was a difficult task, and that's the only place you could go to encounter God. For us, on this side of the cross, on this side of Pentecost, where God's Spirit has been poured out to us, and where Jesus has promised, I will be with you always, and wherever two or more are gathered, God's presence is with us, we can encounter God in the sanctuary every time we pray, we read the Scripture, we worship, we give, we meet with other believers. And so this instruction to go to the sanctuary, go to the temple, which would be really hard for people back in the day, and they used to have to take these long pilgrimages and essentially quit their jobs for a few months or, or save up a lot of money to make them, now we have this access at all times. And so when we experience doubts, when we come through these seasons of deconstruction or these things that we're wrestling with, we go to the sanctuary. We go to God's sanctuary and encounter God there. And just as that was the place when Asaph was able to turn the corner from doubt to praise, that's how it will work for us. And if you're experiencing doubt or deconstruction or there are these questions that you're really wrestling with today, let me encourage you to see that as an opportunity to encounter God. 
as an invitation to the sanctuary. An invitation to seek God in scripture. An invitation to seek God in prayer and community. Because this is actually a place where God can meet you and grow you. And anyone can deconstruct and anyone can tear things down. But it's a lot harder to rebuild. But God is inviting us to do the work here and he's offering to help do that work in our lives as well. I believe that when he does rebuild our faith, when it's been broken down often, he builds it back stronger than it was before. So I would invite you today, if you've been wrestling with things, go to the sanctuary. Go to the sanctuary to encounter with God. And know that any time you're doubting or wrestling with God, that Psalm 73 is here. Psalm 73 is here to guide you through that. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Well, Father God, just thank you for being so patient with us. The reality that you, the God of the universe, are patient with us when we doubt you is more generous than, than truly we deserve. And so we just thank you for that. We thank you for being a God who, who is not afraid of these questions or these seasons that we go through, um, but who walks with us in them and who has given us your words of how to walk through that. And so God, as these, these questions come into our heads and, and these doubts come, would you help us to see our heart in that? And God, if there is any envy, if there is any evil in us that is leading us astray, would you just rid that from us? Would you just make our heart a heart that pursues you above all else? And would you help us to see lies around the world, um, the, the temptations that we're drawn to, the ideas that would seek to lead us away from you, would you help us to doubt those ideas so that we could stand firm in you? And Jesus, we desire to be a people who encounter you on a daily basis in the sanctuary. And so we commit this week um, to being a people who go to the sanctuary. Would you just remind us this week to learn from you, to pray, to go into your presence, knowing that you are the only one who can rebuild us and build our faith. And so Jesus, we just commit to that this week. And I just pray your protection on this body here as, as the doubts come from experiences that don't quite look like the faith we thought we were following or, or when relationships pull us in other directions or when ideas seem to twist and confuse us, I just pray your protection over Common Ground Church today. And I just ask that your spirit of truth will illuminate our hearts and minds to see you in that. And would you just make us a people who are truly pursuing you in all things, that any question we ask would be motivated not by envy or by evil desire, but by the desire to know you better. And Jesus, we just trust you in that. We trust that you meet us in the sanctuary and you guide us in that. And so, Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.
So Common Ground Church, as you go, would you go with the words of Psalm 73? When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, and as for you, Common Ground Church, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. So grace and peace. Have a wonderful week.